Well, hello everyone, Steve Wiss here, and first of all, I want to wish all of you a very happy Christmas and a prosperous new year to come. Um, unfortunately, it's not been the greatest uh, last couple of months for content, uh, for various different reasons. I've been snowed under with a lot of stuff personally, not been well either. I know it's that time of year, but man, I think I feel like I've had like a month long cough and everything along those lines. So we were hoping for a couple of episodes uh, in December. That hasn't quite managed to happen yet, but hopefully we'll tie up the Swedish and Norwegian seasons uh, with some episodes in the next few weeks. But what we do have here is another in-depth interview with the HamCam uh, assistant manager, Tom Dent, who's uh, very generously given uh, loads of his time to the Nordic Football Podcast in recent years, and we really pre appreciate him once more. Um, it's a great interview. It goes through HamCam, sort of the 2023 20, campaign, um, loads of few different factors and things like that. So I hope you enjoy it. And once again, I want to thank everyone for the support this year, um, especially those on Patreon. But in general, the whole listener base, the whole viewing base. And um, you know, we've still managed to crank out quite a few, a few episodes in 2023, and we'll hopefully do more in next year. But uh, sit back and enjoy this one with, with myself and Tom. And uh, once again, have a great Christmas to everyone. Well, I'm delighted again to welcome onto the Nordic Football Podcast for what is it becoming a bit of a tradition now, as we were just saying. Tom Dent, the assistant manager at Ham Cam, is on the show once more. We appreciate your time, Tom. What a year it's been. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm getting used to roller coaster years now, so it's it's uh, nothing but the usual. <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy year in the Leeds area. I must say, uh, a lot of surprises. Table tips this year, I think, were out of the window. Really, um, I, I was saying to you the other day. I think it's probably the worst I've actually predicted any uh, Leeds area table. I think I got odd correct. Yeah, they're the one reliable, reliable team, aren't they? You know where they're going to be pretty much most years. But um, apart from that, it was it was slim pickings for me there. Your own team, Hamcam, um, I guess. I mean, we said the, the, the talk we had last year, the, the aim again was to avoid relegation, stay in the division, and you finished 11th place, which is a lot higher than most pundits actually had you uh, at. Um I, mean, I, I, I put you down for 14th, which I think I don't think I saw anything higher than that outside of perhaps your region. Um, so I almost give myself a little bit of a pat, pat on the back there. But um, let, let's take it back. Let's take it back to the start of the year, the start of 2024, uh, 2023. And there was quite a lot of doom and gloom around Hamcam. There was a lot of negativity. It seemed like there was a poor pre-season going on there um was it quite as bad behind the scenes or, or did you legitimately feel like you had quite a poor off season for, for for whatever reason i think it really depends on which set of glasses you stick on uh i have great understanding that for everyone outside of harmar and probably for some in harmar as well that uh, when you look at some of the results we had and the performances to go with it there wasn't too much to be particularly positive about um you know, you lose 5-0 in your first training game against a team who now have got promoted to elite Syrian, but obviously was a bit of a surprise. Uh, we lost against other Orbos teams quite heavily. We lost 3-0 to Ralfos. Um, we lost the start. 
so it was not a particularly uh, result-wise uh, good pre-season. Um, but I think the the first thing was that Jakob, throughout all of this, has been very, very calm. And when the person, the, the captain of the ship, is very calm, that spreads calm to the rest of the group. Um, and his calmness spread to us as a coaching staff and then to the players. It was based around the fact that we were braced that there was going to be some sort of evolution that was about to happen. I think we spoke last time that, you know, that the group of players that had been together had been together for such a long time that that sort of togetherness and bond and, and cohesion had been there, um, which meant that when me and Jakob came in, we didn't have to change too much. Uh, when we met up for the first training session in, in January, we had 10 players under contract um, because a lot of contracts had gone out. Some, like Morten Bierlo, had left and gone to Rosenborg and made that decision. Uh, we had trialists in. We had new players. We'd signed Henrik Gerdau early. We'd signed Torres Soros early. Um, so it was kind of like we needed time to set, basically, the squad. And then we could go about building um, what the, the, the group was going to look like. Um, we have to be honest and say that the 3-0 against Ralphos was a bit of a turning point um, in that that was probably the first time where we had got quite a few players in. Uh, we'd sign Jens Martin Gummelby then, we'd sign Brynjar Bjarnason then. Um, probably some of them had Kurtovic then. Uh, so we had a bit more of a squad that we felt were, was getting close to being what it would be for the year. To then lose 3-0 against Ralph Foss, who had also had a huge turnaround of players, was, was alarm bells. Um, and that just led to us both as a coaching staff and as a playing group just having some critical questions of each other um, to find out and align ourselves probably more than we had done. I, we, you cannot underestimate that when you sign players from lots of different places, lots of different styles, lots of different um, playing systems, that it takes time to align everybody to the same uh, same point of view and, and same idea. And I think we as a coaching staff have probably underestimated that We've talked about the cold in Norway now. Uh, it's very difficult for us to train 11 v 11 in January and February here, both because, as we talked about, we had very little players, but secondly, the weather conditions didn't allow it and we don't have a indoor facility here like some of the other places do. So that tactical work probably hadn't been as much as we needed. And and I think from then, we had two very good performances against Tromsø and Sarsborg that gave us confidence going into the first game of the season. And then we beat on the field 2 on the first day and... The rest, they say, is history. So it's been a, it was a hard pre-season. I think it's been a, a big, uh, not learning, but I think both for myself and Jakob and, and the club, there's a few things we're going to do differently next year that hopefully avoids a repeat. Uh, we have a far more settled, uh, settled squad this year, which means there's far less turnover in principle that's going to happen. Um, and hopefully that means then we can have going to 2024 with a bit more of a positive start. Yeah, it's always interesting to me with preseason. There are some people who do, they look at results and they think that's the be all end all. It can't just be about results in preseason friendlies. I mean, according to to Bet Explorer, you played eleven preseason, which that seems an astronomical number to me. There was probably more as well behind the scenes, which which are not even listed. Uh, Ralph Foss, it's funny you mentioned them. I, I watched a bit of them this year. They look quite a good side. To me, they're really good on the counter attack uh, on transition, I must say. So, that loss actually probably wasn't as worse a defeat as, as you actually think. But, you know, there was quite a lot of doom and gloom heading in, into the season. Um, for you know, 
perhaps again on onlookers will look at results performances and think it's going to be a struggle. You mentioned there the ins and outs of of Hamcam. Um, yeah, there's a staggering number uh, throughout the whole season. Uh, resembles a a Sarpsborg transfer window from back in the day, which used to have me uh, working overtime. But um, I think now is a good time actually to talk about Hamcam itself as a club more because there'll be people listening who all they see each week are you know are you on you guys on the field you know eleven versus eleven in elite Serian matches. Um, but there's there's a lot more to it, isn't there? Hamcam. I mean, obviously, you say you're based in Hamar there, which is roughly what fifty miles inland from Oslo, something like that. It might be more. Yeah, not, a, a, um... a little, a little, a little bit longer. It takes about an hour and twenty by car, so it's probably yeah, I'd say nine, probably close to ninety hundred miles. Ninety miles of Oslo. Yeah, inland. You know, we mentioned on last year's uh, talk that we had. Yeah, there is a history here at Hamcam, but I'm interested in the actual club overall. I mean. Sort of how big is is the operation now? How many people will work at the club? It is a fully professional uh, football club, of course. Um, you know, just give us some brief insights into the size of the operations at Hamcam overall. I think the the best place to start is to start in the past, and that's not to bring up history of the past, but it also gives a bit of context. Um, Hamcam is is traditionally a traditional club, so in in Norwegian uh folk talk or is a traditional club it's, it's always been around the top levels for quite many years um Stoller Solbakken who's the national coach for the Norway national team he uh, comes or has a very big connection with Hamar and Hamcam uh he wanders into training quite often he lives in Hamar now so it's not uncommon that he pops in and, and says hello um but he was manager in the mid-2000s and that was probably when Hamcam were at their peak uh, compared to now. Um, but then they tried to basically grow too quick. Uh, they built a, or started building a, a lovely brand new stadium, which went close to bankrupting the club. Uh, they had never finished the stadium. They only had two. They built two stands. They were supposed to build four of them. They only got two of them in and then they ran out of money. So they either had to stop building or bankrupt themselves. So. Uh, End up through so, like Dumbarton uh, Stadium with one stand. Yeah, we, we've, we've only got three. There's been loads of talk about a fourth one coming. So I'm hoping in the next couple of years, the fourth one's going to come and it'll be a, a nice, complete stadium. Because the, the two stands that did build it is a very, is a very very nice stadium. And we changed the pitch this year. So it was a nice playing service. And we upgraded the change rooms this year. So the facilities have got much better. Um, but the financial problems they got then meant that Hamcam basically nosedived. So they went from being elite tier into second division. In quite quick time, uh, sort of the early 2010s. Um, when I was in Blink the first time in 2016, we played them in the third level. Uh, and that, you know, the stadium is elite series level, so you can imagine for us as a small team at, the, at that level going to that stadium and thinking, "Wow, what a what a day out!" sort of thing. Um, and then, sort of when that happened, that the administration and the size of the club kind of shrunk. Um, so a lot of people or very few people had a lot of jobs. The academy kind of got scrapped um, and it sort of slowly over time re rebounded to where it is now. So now we have, I would say, probably 10, 12 people in the administration that are full time. Uh, we have an academy that is a, a good academy. They have a, a classification system that's one to five stars here in Norway. And it it's, was classified last year as a three star academy. So it's a good academy. 
uh, and it's had a lot of history in recent years of bringing through not necessarily players directly through the club, but certainly from the region. Um, Harold Robsal, who's now the central defender, uh, played against Molde on, on Sunday uh, in the Norwegian on 21 international. Uh, Vetla Scheidek, who's now in Illustrum. Uh, Christian Eriksen, we all know in Molde. Um, Benjamin Fardos, we sold to Club Bruges uh, in the summer. Uh, and now we have uh, Julian Gungstar, who made his first start on Sunday against Mulder and got the assist for the, the goal for us. So they're starting to get a bit of a reputation of, of bringing through younger players and and um, and giving them the chance. And, and it's going to be a strange uh, pre-season for us this year because uh, we're going through a bit of a generation shift. Alexander Magalvis has, has left. He's re- retired from top football. Um, Jonas Enkudu uh, has moved on uh, and he's been a fantastic servant for the club and obviously the famous man with a bandana. Um, and Armin Nord has also moved on. So we've lost a lot of experience and also a lot of local connection uh, in that squad. Uh, so we now need to try and refresh it with some younger, more local players as well and 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 help yeah, continue the identity of the club, really. Um, well, that's the challenge, uh, isn't it? That's that's the challenge, Tom. Like like you say, in terms of conveyor belts and things, and and this is uh, affects a lot of clubs in Scandinavia, uh, probably across the world, really. If we're being fair, but um, you know, we talk about you know you had a lots of ins and lots of outs, and yeah, I was according to transfer mark, you have the lowest value club in Elite Serien this year. Even the likes of Sandefjord Arlesen were valued more. Quite how accurate that is, I don't know. But in terms of like recruitment and things. Is it is it hard? You know, are you having to sort of pick up pieces? Are you able to get your primary targets that often? Um, and in terms of your actual recruitment team, what is the makeup of the scouting network at Hamcam? Is that have you got specialists in there? Is the manager involved a lot? Are you involved the coaching team a lot? Or is it, you know, like you know, there's director of football models. I don't expect it there at Hamcam, but just tell us a little bit more into the insight of how you actually can get players to the club. It's a good question, and it's actually a question we ourselves have been asking this year. Um, when I joined last year, we had a uh, sports chief, sports director, director of football, call it what you want, um, called Espen Olsen, who um, has a fantastic ability of, of seeing a rough diamond, uh, particularly at the lower levels. Uh, a lot of the, the players in our uh, squad from last year, so Nicola Hagen, Kobe Hernandez Foster, Julian Dunn, Clement Baida, they're all through him who's managed to scour the world and find these rough diamonds and and they've all been relative success in, in Hamcam in, in different ways. Um, but he left at the end of last year to go to Lillestrøm as a chief scout, um, which is not just for footballing reasons, but also other reasons. Um, and we've sort of been debating in the club internally of what model do we want to have, as you say. Do we want to have a recruitment model where we, we put a lot of resources into the scouting? Do we want a model where we have someone that sits at the top of the tree and has responsible for everything to do on the sporting side? Um, and the club decided that they wanted to have a more of a committee, not a committee, but kind of, they call it a sports board here, where you have a head of recruitment, uh, someone that's in charge of the negotiations, someone that's in charge of the finances, someone that is in charge of the administration, Jakob as the manager, um, and they then uh, discuss from the different points of view to come to a common agreement then of, of which direction we want to sign. So 
we signed a person called Jürgen Bjorn, uh, who's now our head of recruitment. Uh, it's the first time the club's ever had a head of recruitment. And he will have, not just himself, but he will have two or three, maybe even four scouts uh, that work with him uh, that are a bit more, let's call it, on the ground, where uh, we try and utilise the fact that we are so close to Oslo that we can take those players that perhaps Voringer, maybe number two, number three in Voringer, who uh, aren't quite good enough for Voringer, but are certainly good enough to play for a club like Hamkam or a club at that level. You see Trumso uh, in particular in recent times have done something very similar where they've signed Yao Ponsil, um, Zakaria Obsal, uh, Romsos now, the winger, uh, Vega Arlen, although he was from Trondheim, but they've, they've gone into that Oslo market where They've got players from second division in Oslo and moved them to Tromsø, develop them, and then had the opportunity. Is Oslo the hotbed? Is Oslo the hotbed for young talent in Norway? I mean, it's pretty obvious, I suppose, being the capital city. But you know, is that an area you definitely have to be looking at then in terms of uh, scouting? Yes, and the reason for that is because uh, there aren't actually that many clubs in Oslo, Oslo, that play top level. Football. Now, I know that's going to sound stupid in the fact you've got Voringer and you have Starbeck and you have Lillestrom that are all relatively close. But if you look under that, there aren't many inner city Oilwells teams, for example. They're all slightly outside of Oslo, all slightly in the suburbs or things like that. There's a lot of second division players or second division teams that are in the city. And that's where you can find uh, rough diamonds, if you want to call it them, if you're willing to look hard enough. So... Uh, Scheid, for example, have, have sold Romsos for big money last summer, uh, last winter. Ponsil from Shelsos. Um, Stern Ottersen, who's in Starbeck now, came from Shelsos. Rasmus Vinger, who's just uh, joined Starbeck in the summer from Shelsos. Um, so there's, there is definitely talent there if you're willing to look for it and willing to give them a chance. And, and for a club like Hamcam, then that's the sort of markets we have to be looking at. Um, if Are you looking at other parts of Scandinavia as well, like Sweden, Denmark? Do you have to have a certain quota of Norwegian players in the squad? The registration? Uh, I you have thought to about have, that, but I, I think the number is either eight or nine, something around that. But it, you are uh, allowed to have eight or nine non-Norwegian players. So Swedish, Denmark, anywhere else in the world you want. Um, so, and that's obviously within a squad of 25. So, we do look elsewhere. Like, we've, we've had, we've signed two Danes this, this year. We signed Marcus Sundberg, who's obviously Swedish. Um, but that's where, as you say, that we have a head of recruitment now that allows us to look in different places. Um, we have scouts that can look in Oslo and be on the ground in inverted commas and, and go to games and, and see players that way. And we can then obviously use Y Scout, which is a fantastic tool to be able to scout players from elsewhere. Jakob has a a brilliant network in Denmark, obviously from his time there and obviously being his home country. So he has a big overview of players there. Um, I have a quite okay knowledge of Orbos um, from my time with Blink and, and elsewhere. Uh, and Lars Brultangen, who's our, uh, yeah, what do they call it? Um, transitions coach, i.e. the one that manages the players from the junior team into the first team. Uh, he has a lot of knowledge of the young national teams in Norway. So he's he knows who the best talents are and who who ultimately now are. would have who now would have like the, the final decision or would it be a committee simple as that? I mean would it come down to a case of Jakob doesn't want that player. So no or he you know someone else or like three or four together make the decision. 
at the end of the day, Jakob will always have the final say mm. um, because he has to be willing to play them. There's no point the club yeah. investing money in a player if he's not. Because there's play some them. clubs who just he put put players onto managers and they're forced to play them. But that's not the model that you're going to have, is it? No, but it, no. but the, 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 to turn it the other way, um, Rosenborg have been very clear that they don't want to be coach-driven in their signings. So there was a big uh, hoo-ha, shall we say, when they sold Togset to Benfica and Chetta Rechtau and 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 uh, Gaia Friegel were allowed to basically pick the players they wanted. And then as soon as they left and Sven Morland came in, all the players that they signed basically have been shipped out on loan or gone elsewhere, which means the club has now had to go back to zero again. So it's finding that balance between the club have to have the the biggest say because they're the ones that uh, have got to manage the players regardless if Jakob and myself are here or not. Um, but if there's going to be a, a monetary investment, whether that's high wages or or uh, a transfer fee, then the manager has to be, to be willing to uh, play them. If it's a player who we see it has potential, then it's a different case. That's that can be more of a club decision because uh, it's not a guarantee that by the time that player is ready to play in the first team, then it's Jakob who has to play them. It might be the next guy or it might be somebody else. That can become a, a club case. But the whole reason of having a committee with different um, viewpoints on it is that then all things can be considered can be considered to give the best final decision then, and that. That's something that we've been able to improve now because we can now plan ahead of what we're going to try and do in the next window. So, for example, when we beat Goodsa uh, and it was official we were staying up, we had a meeting two days after as a coaching staff with a head of recruitment uh, where the head of recruitment presented back to us the names that he's found in all the positions that we want to play based on the profile of player we want. And they were categorized as either like free transfers um absolute certainties to take the level maybe they've played games at that level before maybe they've played at the top level in a different league in scandinavia something like that and the let's call it wild card that might be a potential someone very young or someone that has something that's so exciting as a quality or an x factor but means that we might have to slightly uh, change how we play. So if I give you another example, Haugerson, when they signed Sefiris, uh from Guru two years ago, Haugerson changed their entire way of playing because they needed to put Sefiris in the team because they understood that he he was going to make a lot of money for them and did. Um, but to do that, they have to play him in his best position, in his best style. And then Haugerson changed that and then they were a much better team for it at the end. It's, it's really interesting Um Transfers, I think, are just kind of crazy these days. Anyway, if you look at something like the Premier League, you know it's properly shark-infested waters, dog eat dog, and all sorts of that. Is it? Is it the same in Norway? Is it? You know, have you? Is how competitive is the market? Have you got to get in there quick to beat other teams, or is it a little bit more? You know, long, more patient, drawn-out processes. Is, is it as as vitriol as it is in, say, England? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, if you take Rosmus Vinja and Starbeck, for example, we uh, were drawn, uh, we, we were, or we knew, knew about him, but we knew about him too late. Um, we'd seen his cup games, the Shells lost the team he played for, had an amazing cup run this year. They lost in the semi-final to Mulder. Um, but he had been one of the outstanding, outstanding stars. Um, but by the time we'd sort of shown our interest, Starbeck had been tracking him for six months. So, then when, it, when they heard our interest, Starbeck were already in a position just to go, bang, there's the offer. 
there's the contract, off you go. And they'd already done the work beforehand to show how interested they were. Um, so you have probably, you have the top teams. So we're talking Brown, Glimt, Mulder. Uh, I'm going to throw Boringer in there. I know table lies at the minute, but if you think about size of the club and budgets, they are up there. We can't deny it. Um, and then you probably have teams like Sarsborg and Trumsa uh, and yeah, odd maybe to a bit, Goodser to a bit, where they try and do signings that are outside the box. And you talked about Sarsborg's transfer window from before about signing players that no one's ever heard of. But they have a history of being able to pull players out from anywhere. They do, uh, absolutely, mate. I, I just can't believe that some of their history of transfers was absolutely ridiculous at, at times. But yeah. You know, so you have them, and then you have kind of the rest like us and odds, um, uh, Harrigerson, where we are probably not teams or players' first choice. Uh, they're probably waiting to see if they can get in the other two recruitment pots first, and then if they don't happen, then all of a sudden we become attractive because we are playing in the top league and it's a chance for them to showcase themselves. So uh, then you have to be a bit patient, um, but. You know, there's players we've identified now from Orbos and, and, you know, with contracts going out. I can't name any names for obvious reasons, but we know that we are going to be one of seven teams that are probably interested in them. And then it's very, then it's, then it's about how we pitch ourselves to them and what we can give them. Um, and I think that we are starting to get a bit of a reputation that, that, we firstly, it doesn't matter how old you are, we, we'll play you if we, if you're good enough. And secondly, that, we have a, an environment that's starting to happen now where players are getting better, that they improve. And, you know, obviously Christian Eriksen is the extreme going from his story to going to Mulder for big bucks. But that Vettlashavik had a very good season and did that. Hassan Kudachai left us and went to the second league in Bundesliga, for example, um, which is a massive step for him. Uh, Halvor has been linked. Benny went to, um, Benjamin Fahler's went to Belgium. Uh, so we're starting to get a reputation now for that you can come to Hamcom and still go to the big teams after. It's not like it's a middle step to a middle step. Uh, and that's what we've got to use as our recruitment strategy now to, mm. to get the get the players we want. Fascinating, fascinating stuff that, Tom, uh, into the, the transfer dealings of the club. And uh, let's switch back to on the field now, because ultimately it's on the field where it matters at the end of the day, I suppose. Um, and vital but you, you survived again for the second straight season in Elite Serian. But at one point, it really didn't look great for you this season, I must I must say. I do remember pre-season, I think me and you had a chat and I said, you, you've got to get out of the traps quickly. Uh, and to be fair, you did. You won two of your first three games. But from match week four to 12, it was a horror run. Eight, eight losses in nine games. I think at one point, you could hardly score a goal. Um, I've got to be honest, at that stage, I, I didn't believe that you were going to survive because you were on, on course for an average points of about 20. This is this is what I'm really interested in, how you've actually been able to turn this around because a lot of clubs, that could have been it, really. Um, you know, that is... What is it like being around a club when results are that bad? Um, I mean, that is... I think it's fair to say the previous season, you never got into such a rut like that. And for it to happen so early as well, a is it a case of were, were you as bad as those results suggest? And, and b how on earth do you actually turn the fortunes around? 
Uh, the answer to the first question is no, we weren't as bad as results suggested. Uh, we, uh, one of the strategies we used um, to keep motivation, I guess, but also to keep course and saying and, and trust that this is the way to go was that we used the data that was around us to suggest that that was the case. So uh, we did a tally from the first 10 games of 2022 and the tally of the first 10 games of 2023. In 2022, we ended up having two, I think it was two more points than we should have had. In 2023, we were at least eight points less than we should have had. Um, and a lot of that was down to, as you said, last year, we were the draw specialists. We were the... We were the best at when we were able to. Uh, you took my advice and have stopped doing draws, didn't you? Draws get pretty you much, yeah. Basically, yeah. Last year we were able to get that bit where we played badly. We were able to steal a draw, and that was one point gained in many situations. Um, this year, uh, we haven't had that same ability. Partly because again the groups changed, and and we that cohesion and that togetherness we didn't have particularly at the start of the season. Um, part of it as well was perhaps a bit too aggressiveness from us as a staff. Um, it doesn't take a genius to work out that in those uh, run of results, we had a 7-3, we had a 4-0, we had a 3-0, we had a 4-0 uh, against us. And a lot of those games were basically, we got countered into, yeah, next week, basically. We were a little bit too open. We tried to uh, press high. We tried to close off teams from, from goal kicks um, so we could go man-man. We had a lot of success with that last year. Um, but we didn't manage to replicate that with the new group we had. Um, so it meant then that while we had, we were creating chances and we were good when we were established, teams were, were too, uh, got too easy access then for us to get in between us in the counter-attacks and then go forwards. Um, Rosenborg away, they were in a terrible run when we played them away. First half, we were by far the best team, in my opinion. Uh, Andre Hansen and Goal had two or three really big saves. We hit the post. Uh, they score off a corner, which was a bit of a scuff. Um, so we we had that false pretense. Not about their only winning the first half of the season, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a that was a running uh, theme. Uh, the, the 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 theme that kept coming up was this was a good time to play them. We had Mulder at a time where they had struggled with results to start with. We had Roaringer at a time where they were struggling at home. We had Rosenborg where they were struggling. We had, uh, I think that was it, those three mainly. And then all three of those not only beat us, but beat us well. So we were the team that if you were having a bad run of form, just come and play us and we'll fix your problem. Um, but we sort of adjusted that. Um, as I said, we had data metrics to suggest that we were closer than we the results would suggest uh we, there was a famous one we played odds at home lost one nil they had two shots on target the whole game uh we yeah it was a, it was a draw game nothing game and our goalkeeper missed an open goal in the 94th minute from a corner he went up for the corner the ball dropped his feet and i'm not joking 30 centimeters from goal and he swung and he shanked it and it's been cleared off the line and if you haven't seen it highly recommend it um, I can't remember it, seeing that. Actually. Yeah, I don't know why, find, how find, I missed that one. Find the highlights of uh, Hamcom Odd in June, and you'll see you'll see the keeper miss from an obscene angle. Um, but it, it, the point was, is we had the metrics to suggest that we just have to continue the course. Um, and you talked a lot on on your show about Trumsa in terms of how they, at the start of the season, they 
had all the metrics to suggest they shouldn't be getting the results that they got, we had the opposite effect. We had the metrics to suggest that we should have been getting the results we have, but for one other reason or not, we we didn't get them. And the important thing from that experience-wise is that you have to stick the course um, because Voringer, I believe, wouldn't have been in the situation they were in if they hadn't either. It maybe have taken Fargo out and and changed coach. That's one thing, but. To change system as dramatically as they did from a back four to a back five midway through a season, it takes so much time to, for relations to sit, for roles to sit, for understanding to sit. Uh, so they were doomed to fail to, when they had so much to change. We made a, a slight change midway through the season. We went from a 3-5-2 to more of a 5-4-1-3-4-3 because we were, as we said, a little bit too... Um, easy to counter against. So this was, was there a temptation? Was there, was there ever a temptation? And it sounds radical just to rip it up and try something completely different because otherwise you're just on the way down. But it sounds like you just, you were really concentrating hard on, you know, keeping with that process, believing in the systems that you had, the players, it sounds like, you, you know, you, you've got a good group there, really. You can actually understand these, this as well. And, and be mentally strong, but was there ever a temptation to really like go, you know, four four two? Yeah, the temptation's there, of course, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that if um, if the change to three four three hadn't have worked, then I'm sure you know both myself and Jakob have coached teams in a back four in a four three three, so we would have been comfortable enough to, from our side, do it, but we didn't feel it was right with the group of players that we had, like. We feel that we have very, very good central defenders in a back three, uh, but perhaps not as comfortable in a back four. And we've we've had games where we've changed to a back four mid-game and it hasn't it, it has left us a bit too exposed. Um at that time we didn't have too many wingers either, which was another reason why we'd stuck with three five two. Um when we signed Moses White in the in the in the summer and we got uh Vida Arianson, who are both more wingers, that gave us the opportunity to do that a little bit more. So there was a temptation, yes, but we felt that when when you have moments like that where the results go against you and when we've had the pre-season that we had where it was a little bit turbulent, the, the, the worst thing you can do is keep changing and chopping and changing because all of a sudden players' heads start spinning because they're not quite sure which direction they're going in and what they should be focusing on and what they should be doing. Um, the coach loses a little bit of faith or face because by keep changing it all the time, he's showing that he's not sure either what the best 11 is or the best formation or system is. And then you, you, you're, you're constantly rolling the dice to try and find a solution. Um, and as I said, we we trusted it enough. We got to the Orlison game that we won. And you you named that obviously in that period, we, we had barely scored and and um, had to take next to no points. Uh, we are actually the sixth best team from that Orlison game to now in the league. If you look at all the points from that period, we are top six. Well, do you know what? The, the Orlison game, looking back, feels like the turning point. I, I remember it really well because I was I had a, a rare betting interest in one of your games. I always do like to take the goals when two poor teams or desperate teams face each other. I feel like they both go into a match, feel like they have to win it or, or it's a great chance to win it. 
Um, and I remember that game, and you deserve the win. And you know, then you win three in a row. And I think I would say, not from that point onwards, but say from round 18 onwards, it, it felt more like the ham camp of last season overall. But I guess that's what you get when you get the confidence of nine points, for example, in a row doing that. You, you had been winning in the Norwegian Cup as well. I know there were lower league teams. Does that help? Is that where the cup can be a nice distraction as well? And it just yeah. gradually rebuilding confidence and then you do get some points on the board. Absolutely. Uh, we, we talked about it ourselves in the staff that the cup this year has been very, very important to us. It, it, it is always important to us. Um, like, you know, there's always that feeling uh, in Norway when you get the first, at least the first two rounds where it's more regionalised and you you as an elite team team are always going to play a team in the fourth tier or the fifth tier um, that, okay, we can make rotations here. We can maybe give some young players their debuts. We can, we can sort of, uh, yeah, take a foot off the gas. But if you look at the lineups we played in those games, we played a full of strength side for the main reason, just to give players confidence and just give them the ability to, you know, work on things and, and have it more as a, as a competitive, not training session, that's disrespectful to the other teams, but a, a, di a distraction from the league. You know, going to Nibuksun that had a couple of hundred people there is different to going to play Lurkendal with thousands there. Uh, going to Mjolnir way up in the north um, and having a couple of hundred people there is much different to going to Borderglimpse where there's thousands there. So it allowed us really to to change some players and, and give some opportunities to others, but also to really put in a team and work on things without the spotlights of the elite series being on us. Uh, and I do believe per personally very strongly that that cup run is a, is a big reason why we turned it. Because I think if we'd struggled in the cup as well, then all of a sudden that the, the negative train is just going to keep going and keep going and keep going because it's very difficult then to to turn it and see where the next win or the next positive performance is going to come from. Whereas at least in the cup, there was lots of positive performance. We scored lots of goals. You've mentioned that we had problems scoring goals in elite Syrian. The fact that we were able to score lots of goals in the league, uh, in the cup, sorry, meant that we at least knew that we had confidence to score. Uh, and we scored lots of different goals. You know, we, we scored from set pieces. We scored from counter attacks. We scored against a lot of teams that were low, which is, a very unhamcam thing to do is score against teams that sit low against us. Uh, that's usually us on the other opponent. Um, and that was a really big factor, I think, to how we managed to keep momentum, keep positive energy in the group and, uh, above all, have the season that we had in the end. I, I was delving into a lot of metrics and stats earlier today and I was going to throw quite a few at you. But then I actually suddenly thought to myself, do you know what? This is, this is a load of bollocks, actually. Uh, because... It's based over 30 games, and I think it made me actually... I've almost become too metrics-driven myself, actually, these days. I think we've got to be careful what we look at, because Hamcam, it was almost like two different teams this year, or three different teams, say, from you know the first three rounds, and then the next 10, and then sort of the next five or six, and then your final sort of dozen games. Um, you know, in terms of the metrics and that, over the 30 games, it doesn't look great, but there's no doubt about it, that team in the second half of the season was, was pretty strong, I felt. You had defended well um you know several clean sheets in there yeah there was the odd poor result you know odd they they seem to have the wood on you don't they um that, that sort of team Hargerson was a strange result as well I think they just had a new manager but for the most part I thought you were really good defended again it was the old ham cam once more I think 
I say well done to you for actually turning it around again, really, and, and getting yourself ultimately safe with a game uh, with two games to spare. Um, there is one stat I want to talk to you about, though, and um, I, I'm, I'm a bit baffled by this one. The fewest fouls suffered in the league was by you, 223. It was far less. Trumps are actually the next up. They were quite a fair team. Are, are you? What is the reason for that, Tom? Are you almost too honest? You're obviously not telling players to be rolling around and and all that sort of thing. That's that's a bizarre one to me. Or is it just simply the case of you know you did have the lowest possession? You're probably not on the ball as much. I think the honest answer is it's probably the second one more than the first one. Uh, that when we when we concede the ball, it's obviously difficult to gain fouls if you don't have possession of the ball. Uh, although having said that, we gave away a penalty against Trumsa uh, at home from Sonberg putting the ball in someone's face when he had possession of the ball. So you can get fouled without the ball as well. Um, but no, I, I think it's not about being honest. I think that you talked about the, the ham cam team in the second half of the season. I think what really got us those results against Viking and against um, Gutsa when the pressure was on was that we showed that, not nasty side, but we showed that really cynical side when we had to. Um, Viking found it very, very, very uncomfortable uh, they had a lot of ball, they were around our box a lot, but they found it very, very uncomfortable to play against us. And that for us is a really big part of being a Hamcam team that we have to, you know, we, we have a, a group of fans who are an excellent group of fans and a very patient group of fans in that they don't really want to see a team that has 600 passes in a game, plays through the lines, plays through the thirds, tries to score the perfect goal. What they want to see is a team that defends well, works extremely hard. When they get the ball, it plays forward, it direct, puts balls in the box uh, and have numbers in the box that want to score. That's what a Hamcam fan wants to see. So that helps us then in terms of the way we want to play um, because it means then the two, the two are together. Like if you have Border Glimp now try and do what we do, I think there's a lot of people in Border that would put their nose up at it because... Shettle Clutton plays fantastic football and has done for the, last, for the last few years. And the same with Mulder and the same with Ron. Um, but we, um, so we, we, I think we've had with a fewish yellow cards as well in the league. I think that's another stat out there for you. Or at least at one point we had by far the fewish yellow cards. In the I think the you ended up mid-rank, mid-rank for that. So I think you probably got stuck in a bit yeah. more in the last 10. But, but, what, um, what, yeah. but, but what, what is interesting was that the first player or the first two players actually that missed the game through suspension was the game against Gutsa where we stayed up. So that's round 28. That was the first round we missed players because of suspensions to yellow cards. And that's very, very rare. If you put that in comparison... Oh, no, you were. Right. You were, sorry. Yeah, you ranked best. Yeah. 29 yellow cards along with Starbeck with 29 as well and Volarenga with 38. The dirtiest team for those who are interested uh, was actually Rosenborg with 60 yellow cards. Yeah. In, in, if you put that in comparison, the right back for Orlison the first half of the season managed to get his first ban after four games. He got four yellow cards in four games, the first four games of the season, which meant he missed the fifth game because he was suspended. So it's not something we're like, it's not a, how do you call it? It's not a, 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 a deliberate tactic. Jakob Mikkelsen was suspended for the game against Mulder now with four yellow cards, and I think he's one of the only coaches this year who's been set, who's missed a game through suspension. So it's it's most definitely not coming from the top to say it like that. Um, but I think a lot of it has to happen with the fact that we were defending a lot and didn't have a lot of the ball. 
You mentioned there Jakob Mikkelsen's suspension um, into the last game. I've got to ask you about this before we move on to something different. But you were in the hot seat for the Mulder away game in Elite Syrian. How did that feel? Was that, I bet that was quite, in a way, was it different or, you know, a little bit exciting for you? I, I, I can't say I didn't enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed being a boss again. Uh, but I also have to be honest enough to say that there was very, very few things that were different from a normal match day in the sense that Jakob travelled with the team, all the preparations Jakob led, the meetings were exactly the same. Jakob had the usual pre-match meeting at the hotel. Uh, and it was very easy for me then to just to be the man who has to uh, talk through the lineup to Mulder when that came out, uh, have the last chat before we go out and have the chat at half time uh, in terms of small tweaks. Where, where can he? Where is he allowed to be? When if you're a manager suspended, what's the actual rules? Is he's, he's you know he's not allowed in the dressing room, right? The rule is basically when the from the point that the the team arrive at the stadium to the the referee blowing for the full-time whistle, he's not allowed uh, in any contact with anyone in the staff or the players. So that means that he's not allowed in the change room, he's not allowed in the mix zone, he's not allowed in the tunnel, but he's also not allowed to... He can't text me on the bench, for example. He's not allowed to ring... I'm not allowed to speak but how to can you police that, bench. though? How can that be policed? Well, the thing is, is cameras catch him anywhere. So in, in, in all of the games, there's a there's a delegate from the NFF. So uh, if he's caught, it's like a, it's like the classic one where you have an exam at school and you have a little cheek, cheeky check on your phone. Uh, if the NFF delegate um, sees you and suspects you of contacting the bench, then he has the right to check. And if he checks, then your suspension gets lengthened. So, well, wouldn't he be uh, better off just staying at home and texting from home? Probably, uh, but then it's the, what signal you give the rest of the group. Then that's like I say. For, I'm sure there was a there was a line from him saying that if we'd had to go to Mulder, um, need to get points, then we could have seen a repeat of Mourinho in the washing basket when he got suspended from UEFA. That could well have happened. I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, but when it was a game that was only. For Mulder, they could finish fifth or fifth. It made no difference for us. We could maybe we could either go up one place or go down one place. Then it's a lot easier for him just to sort of make sure everything's done properly before. We talked through scenarios before the game, so we had an idea of substitutions before the game, um, and then just let the let the show. Do you know what I think I would it. do? I, I would I would disguise myself like proper. You know. I'd, I'd, it'd be hard for me to disguise myself, but perhaps someone of a more average build would uh, would get away with it. Um, you know, like maybe shave my head off, things like I'm, I'm getting all sorts of ideas yeah, in my head. See, now, Tom, I love see, this. You've got there's, love there's this. a side of you that people obviously don't know about the meat man, the meat man thief. Um, but no, so it, it was it was for me it was a it was a great experience. Like I say, it was I, mm. again I have to give a lot of credit to the players because they were very switched on. It would be very easy just to take it. Uh, take the foot off the gas and treat it just as a training session and, and just go to the motions. But um, it's a great credit to the group that they were very um, switched on. They're very engaged. Uh, they're very attentive to treat it as, as much as they could as, an, as a normal elite series game. Uh, and they were as disappointed as we all were that we didn't quite manage to keep on to the win um, after 90 minutes. But we're happy with the performance. We're happy with the point. We're happy with the, the point meant that we stayed 11th after Heritage's win. Um, and it also showed, like I say, that I have my own personal ambitions to be 
in the hot seat again someday. But I'm also very happy in the role I have now. And, and it made me realise that again, that I'm much better for that role now than I was when I was in Blink two years ago. But I still have a bit more to learn and a bit more growing up to do before I do that full time. Yeah, I thought it was a really committed performance from what I saw the highlights. A lovely goal, actually, as well, I must say, that was scored. And, um, you know, but for a, a late penalty, you would have been taking three points away from from Mulder there. It's the second year you've had in the job um, underneath Jakob Mickelson. You just said that you, you've learned even more the, the, the last sort of 12 months and you, you're getting close again now um, to, to, to realising that you're probably a better coach uh, for this. What would you say the, the sort of the big things over the last year that you've even developed even more about yourself? But I think last year, you can't underestimate the fact that myself and Jakob hadn't worked together before. So last year, in many ways, was about um, working out how we can make each other good, uh, what his strengths are. He's always got far more experience than I have. He's, he's managed in Europa League qualifiers and in the Superliga in Denmark and, and it was a great source of energy and information for me to learn from. Um, but he's, he's, uh, you know, he's not that great technically and he's not, he, he's more about the totality to the team. My strength's a bit more with individuals and, and the analysis and things like that. So it took us a year to sort of work out how we can use it to the best we can. Um, and then this year it's just been about doing that even more. So rather than learning about it, actually, um, implementing it, um, and there's a the Lars Brutonen, who's the transition coach, he's been more of an assistant this year than than Hawken, who was the same role last year, perhaps has been. Uh he's he large has a a different perspective than us. He's a former player. He's played before, me and Jakob haven't. So it gives us another viewpoint of more how to present information, how to deliver information. Um but we've learned, like I say, that the dynamics of the team, like I say, we, we've evolved the group now. We, we said that we felt player for player. We had a better squad this year than we did last year. And, and time has shown that to be true. Um, but it's taken time to get that into a, um, uh, a functioning unit. Um, and for me, the, the preparation has been vital. Like when we were on the podcast together last year, I talked about how we, the Hamcam team, were our first thought was always about stopping the opponent. The first thought was always about making them look bad and then utilising their weaknesses and trying to get something from that. Last year, we didn't do that well enough um, to win games. We did it well enough to draw games. This year, I feel that the biggest difference is we have been able to neutralise opponents, but also provide more of a threat. So, you know, we won one game last year with more than one goal, and that was Sonderfield at home early on last year. This year, we've beaten Viking 3-0, we've beaten Rosenborg 3-0. Um, there's other results that have gone past me. Uh, Orlison away 2-0, could have been 3. Uh, so we've had an ability to score multiple goals. The fun, you let me talk about data, the fun fact I've been throwing around recently is if we've had eight clean sheets in 30 games, I think we're top four in the league in terms of number of clean sheets. But we have the second most conceded goals in the league. I think yeah, this is why I was more. saying earlier that I think with metrics and stats, you've almost got to look beyond certain things at times. Um, mm. You know, and like XGA, I think you were third worst in that as well. But you just didn't, you know, obviously different versions of teams crop up over a 30-game 30, 30 season, don't they? 
yeah, but it's about then, as you say, about what what we've learned. What we've learned is this: that you just have to imp- you have to have a, a, enough focus on yourselves that you don't have to fear teams. Last year we were we were as I say had a lot of focus on the opponent because we wanted to stop them. I think this year we've been able to develop more of a, a I wouldn't say positive playing style, but a, a, an ability to be able to have a focus on us and tweaking things to the opponent rather than the other way. The other way last year was about making sure we stopped the opponent and then tweaking things from us to be better. Uh, I think this this year we've been able to have more of a consistency in our play and develop our play more, uh, no matter the opponent. And then that in results then has meant that we've managed to get positive results. And I also think we've been better from set pieces this year as well, which I would love to say that is my responsibility as well. But um, we had a run where we conceded... Uh, we conceded a set piece in six away games in a row, but after that, it's been quite good. So uh, they're probably the main takeaways. And, I, and mm. as I'm, 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 uh, although it's not been officially signed yet, I, I, I'm planning to be here next year along with Jakob. So I, I really look forward to to taking more steps and 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 taking Hamcam hopefully to a another level than they've been this year. Maybe we can get it done in in earlier rounds and start, you know, being those boring teams like Odd and, and Sussborg and, and Goodser, who, you know, are always going to be safe one way or another. And it's more a case than of being somewhere in the middle of the pack. That's, that's I think, the, the most realistic goal for Hamcam now is to be that team in that 8 to 12 bracket that, you know, no you know we're going to stay up, that no one's <laughs> talking about. Exactly. The boring teams, that's why I call them that. Odd. The odd sort of team. Um, yeah, before we, we finish off, I want to talk to you about a few general things um the norwegian schedule and this is it's a bit of a bugbear of mine this year i must say if we look at the last two rounds probably the last three or four really they were played the the, the cold conditions were absurd I, I must say i mean there was some crazily low stuff i think the the, the playoff match between kongsvinia christiansen was like minus 17 degrees celsius or something like that on a grass pitch um it just seemed like it way too low for football. If we look at the last round, the only two games that had really any significant goals were in uh, Stavania and uh, Hagerson. And I think the temps were zero or one degree there because they're by the coast. Everywhere else was a much lower, lower scoring. And, and uh, you can see why, because of the, the coldness. But then I look at the schedule, Tom, and um, you know, mid-season, there's always a lot of blank weeks in like June, July, even sometimes August. And now I was thinking, you know, say before European football starts, you should you should the, the Norwegian calendar be making the most of slotting in a couple of midweek rounds while the conditions are good? Obos didn't have a game between, I think it was, um, yeah, like 9th of July and the 4th of August, which for me sounds ridiculous. Is is the, what's the reasoning for that? And do you think they need to look at the schedule a little bit and cut out these December rounds? Uh, the reason for it to start with that one is is basically Norwegian culture, Norwegian society. That um, Norwegian society shuts down a lot in the summer. Most people in a normal job—I don't class football as a normal job—but in a normal job would have between two and three weeks blocked off for summer vacation uh, of their allocated, I think it's four or five weeks they have a year, they usually block off two or three of those in the summer. So I think the culture in Norway in general is that has been um, where they want to make sure that footballers get something similar because 
uh, you know, the, the, the overlap between Norwegian society and culture and also Norwegian working law is a lot closer in football here than it probably is in other countries. Like in England, there's, there's practically two different uh, unions between football and the rest of the working world, that, and that's just accepted. In Norway, it's a little bit more overlapped. Um, but to, to answer the second point, yes, 100%. That it makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever that we're playing football in the months that are worst in a cold country and not playing football in the months that are best in a cold country. Um, I think that the... I think it will be looked at. I mean, this year it's been a bit of an exception because they've swapped the cup back to uh, one year. Obviously, they had the cup last year where it was over two seasons. Um, so they've had to have basically two cups this year with Bron winning the first one and either Mulder or, or Glimpse winning the, uh, this one this uh, this weekend. Um, but I think it's going to come to a point where they have to prioritise something because Mulder and Border Glimpse and the teams that are constantly in Europe want not preferential treatment, but they want things to be set up in a way that gives them the chance, best chance of succeeding in Europe. So, for example, I think the teams that were playing European qualifiers had the right to postpone their game at the weekend uh, in the league to give them a full week's preparation into a European game, which I, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's a good uh, solution by the league. But you, as I say, you have something has to give. Like you can't do that and then be playing in December. For me, it's pointless. Um, those teams that want the European games, that's fine that they get to cancel those weekend games. But then they've got to be more open to playing midweek games in in May and in mean, in June, or having less of a summer break, uh, so that we can get the fixtures in when when the time is right. Um, because again, next year is the European Championships, so. I think we have 10 rounds before we have a break for the championships and then we finish the season again the same weekend. So we're going to have similar conversations probably in 12 months' time, um, which I don't think is right. It baffles me. I just think that the best time of year and, and you, it's like it's wasting away. And, you know, I almost get it a little bit more if there's a, if there's a championship, but Norway never seem to qualify for them anymore anyway. So that's in that respect, it's a, it's a waste. But... I mean, like the Obos one, I couldn't believe that, especially with the pitches there, you know, being worse than Elite Serien. One thing I will say, I don't think I would ever advocate the season starting before April. I've been there, down that route before. March football isn't great either. It's just, no. you know, in the hands of the weather it is is brutal. But um, do you think but anything ever will change? In, I just hop in on one thing of that. I think in Obos, there is there, there has to be a bit more acceptance that there's a break in Obos for the simple reason being that there's a semi-professional league. So... If players are working uh, in another job on the side of playing football and they go away on holiday, then all of a sudden they've got a conflict of like they when they have the off season of football, they're working. And then when they're not working, they're playing football. So there has to be some alignment there where they have the opportunity to have the time away uh, that they're allowed to have. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to get players playing semi-professional football, and then the quality of Orbos is just going to drop. So, I, I get it. I get it to a point in Orbos. Uh, in fairness to them, they finish their season. They have a lot of more midweek rounds. The mid they Correct. fit a lot more midweek, and I think that's what Elite Serien should do. They should fit a few Correct. more midweek rounds in before the European affairs can. Whether that yeah. is possible, don't know. 
whether it'll ever happen. No, no, I don't know that. either, but I, I, I agree. I think that's where that, that, that has to be the way forward. And like you said, we've had no, I think we had one midweek elite scene round this year. Every other round has been a weekend. Uh, and as you say, if we're going to have a shorter season, which I believe, I think last year they actually had it quite well. They did it quite right, mm. where they finished middle of November. Um, <laughs> It's a lot started, better that. I, yeah. It, uh, there was a lot more midweek rounds. Um, whether it will happen, I don't know, but there's a lot of discussions about a lot of things. I know there's a lot of... Uh, yeah. The cup as well has been discussed a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, there's been talk about that. They've gone back to the yearly model, but again, people want that to go back to how it was before, where you started it in one year and finished it the other year, like the Sweden model. So there's a lot of discussion around the, the, the future of Norwegian football. And I think a lot of it is now more about Sporting success, obviously, the, the, the teams in Norway and Europe have done really well. Uh, coefficient points now are getting to a point where they are potentially going to get more European spaces. Um, we've produced players like Holland and Erdegaard and, and those uh, quality players. So now it's just more about how can we maintain that? Uh, because things are always developing in, in world football. You know, things are always changing and... Mm. You, you hear a lot now at the top top level about the players are playing too many games. I agree completely. Um, but that isn't the same problem we have in Scandinavia. It's not about playing too many games. It's more than about the spread of the games because you can't play all year round. Yeah, we talk, um, you mentioned the coefficient there. And um, one thing I, I personally believe the elite series is actually a pretty strong league. I, I think you guys have done really well to, to be... You have the 11th best team in Elite Serie, and I think you've got to, you know, pat yourself on the back, Tom, because it's, it's not a weak division. I think it's a lot stronger than Al-Svenskan. I think it's getting closer towards Danish Super League, and it never will topple that league, I don't think. But you never know, but it's getting a lot closer there. You know, you're right. Teams have done well in Europe. Um, you know, Glimt are in... Both Glimt and Mulder are playing European football after Christmas, whatever. Mulder might actually be better off in the Europa uh, Conference League, to be fair. Um, you know, Brand were penalties away from knocking out AZ, I think it was. Um, mm. you know, it's been it's been a great, a great run. Are, are you and, and the actual league itself is I think there's been a lot of surprises, like I said at the start here. The likes of Tromsø, Brand, although for some Brand is less of a surprise. Um, you know, Viking Molder down in fifth place. So, I mean, are you are you a little are you surprised how strong it's become? And, um, you know, it, is it genuinely as strong as I? kind of perceive it to be I said to you on the podcast last year my last statement was if you offered me 14th in 2023 I, I'd take it right now because I felt the league this year was was a stronger league to swap and this is no disrespect to them but to swap Christiansen and Yaev for Bran and Starbeck was like a, a big switch um, and I think the, the the main thing, I mean, we we internally feel that the, the not only the fact that we've stayed up, but the fact that we've we've got eleventh is by is a, a monumental achievement for a club like Hamcam that has a bottom three budget and there are you know teams that have far bigger budgets than we have and to be close to them and, and be able to compete with them, it's been a fantastic season. Um, but I think, as you rightly say, that the the whole. I wouldn't even just say the level of the elite series. I would also say the level of almost has also got a lot higher. Um, if you look at some of the names that are going to be there next year, you've got Star, Starbeck, Orlison, uh, Songdal, Kongsvinger, who have all got elite series experience, have been there, have been around it. 
the fact that two, maybe three of them might come up next year. Uh, you, you know, Christensen might. I tell you, you now, Obos, you're there. absolutely right. Obos this year has got a lot stronger. The goal, the the average number of goals has come down, and that is usually the sign that the league's getting stronger overall. Mm. There's still plenty of goals in in Obos, but it got to it was ridiculous before. Um, and that's a sign that there are usually weak teams in there. But I think it's got. Uh, you're right. It's, I've, I've watched quite. A lot. I've watched more robots this year than normal, and I've been really impressed with some of the, the, the football on show. So you're absolutely right. The both top tiers in Norway. You got teams like Lind are coming back in now as well. I think I've heard that they might be quite good next year. From what some yeah, they'll be they'll, they'll they'll be challenging for top six. I think. Mm. So it's it is get, certainly getting stronger. One, we're gonna, I've got to finish it. We can't avoid talking about it. VAR and Elite Serian. How do you think it went in the first year in in the top flight of, of Norway? Tom, overall, yay or nay? Would you like my political answer, or would you like my honest answer? I think we've got to, we've got to get to the, the crux of it here. But I, I mean, it's, it feels different in 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 every country and in every competition. Like VAR in Champions League is different to what it is in Premier League. And what it is to La Liga, and they have. What is it been like in in Norway, Elite Serien? Is VAR the sort of system that's going to work in Norway? Well, the first is there's, there's two not like exceptions. I'm going to say, but there's two things I, I want to make clear: VAR, because I don't think a lot of people consider this when they give an opinion. Number one is we don't know uh, what referees talk about when they're making the decisions. So when the Premier League have released the the dialogue between the referees as such uh, from the goals that have happened that have been a bit controversial. We can agree or disagree, but at least we have some context as to where they've come from, the decision-making, the process they go through. I don't know what the, that is in Norway, so I, I can't say whether it's good or bad. But what has been clear as the season's gone on is that they've moved the lines, which I think has been wrong. That they've, they, they tried to have a very high line to start with, and then they realised that they had to make some changes, and then there was an incident between boring and odd where it took them seven minutes to decide if a goal was offside or not. And that then changed the rules. Based, they put in some new guidelines to say that if there was a decision that takes longer than, let's say, two minutes, two and a half minutes to decide, then the game, the, the original decision stands because it's it's not conclusive enough to change the decision. Um, I go back to VAR and I go back to what I said last year and I stand by even more now, having had a year of it this year than I did last year that until referees just referee the game and VAR is used as a tool to clean things up, it is just going to go to pot. Because the problem is at the minute is every situation that happens is reviewed. So every goal that happens is checked for an offside, checked for fouls, checked for this, checked for that. You're looking for things that it could go wrong. So your, your mindset going into a situation is to find a fault in it. Until they turn it the other way, and just look at it and look to see. I'll give you an easy example. We played Sunderfield away. Uh, we won one nil. We got a penalty for a handball. Now handball is a is a very grey area. Uh, I don't know what the rules anymore. I've seen. Uh, I don't know. If Nobody seems to, to know. I don't know if it's allowed to hit a body part and then your arm, or if it's not allowed to hit a body part and your arm. I don't know what the rule is, but. We got a handball decision. The, the referee was very clear and I applaud him after the game. He talked about why he'd given the decision, what the rules were, how he saw it. And it was one of those situations where if uh, the referee hadn't given it, I don't think VAR would have gone in and given a penalty. But when the referee gave it, 
it wasn't a clear and obvious, as they sometimes use that phrase, to not give the penalty. That, for me, is how VAR should be used. That unless it's clear and obvious, unless there's something um, that is obviously wrong, just let the referees referee the game. And until they get to that point where referees are strong, experienced, brave, whatever adjective you want to use, until they get to the point where they just referee the game, we're going to be having these discussions all day. Because the thing is with VAR, in my opinion, is that you take one person's subjective opinion or four people's subjective opinion and you double it by adding VAR. Then you have eight people's subjective opinions. And they say, uh, was it too many cooks spoil the broth? That's essentially what happens in refereeing. Because the more referees you have looking at a situation, the more opinions there are, more subjective means there are, then you get this clouded, it, one week that's a penalty, one week that's not a penalty, one week that's a red card, one week that's not a red card. And that's that's been the challenge, I think, from, for the Federation this year, is that I think they underestimated that effect. And I, I hope and I still believe that VAR is right. I hope and I believe that it will be better next year than it has been um, this year, or it will be better next year than this year. My one concern, and this is going to be... Uh, interesting to see now is that all clubs in Norway are member steered. So that means that their members uh, uh, are allowed to propose things. It goes then to the whole members of a team and then the club basically represent their members. I'm pretty sure in all 16 elite Syrian teams this year, when that members meeting happened at the start of 2024, there is going to be 16 motions for the club to say no to VAR. Uh, the members are going to vote that the club should stand and say no to VAR. But I'm not sure the clubs themselves, and when I talk about the clubs here, I'm talking the chairman's chief execs. I'm not sure they can go in a position where their club actively says, like they do in Sweden, we are against VAR. And that's going to be the big discussion into the winter now and I think it's going to be a, a huge debate in Norwegian football where it's going to be supporters versus the the Chiefs and the NFF and but also their own clubs about how uh, they they use the phrase here VAR is here to stay or VAR is here to stay I, I believe that as much as I know people don't agree with that um, but I do think there's going to be an awful lot of noise about it going into 2024 far more than there was into this year because it hasn't been good enough this year. That's we can no. all be honest with that. And I think they yeah. they themselves would be honest enough with that. Um we had a, a situation in Molder on on Sunday where I still believe it's a penalty. Um I understand why he doesn't give us a penalty live because it's it's very unclear who takes the ball first. But if you look at the, the T V picture it's very clear that the defender the midfielder is our midfielder takes the ball first and then is is fouled. That for me is what VAR should be used, but that's just that's a decision where there is a doubt. You use it to confirm the doubt. You're not looking for a mistake. You're confirming an incident, yes or no. Um, that's where it needs to get to. How uh, forget like decisions and forget referees for a minute. How much less enjoyable is it with VAR as a as a, as a, as a coach for the fans? Do you think because? Like, it feels like emotions almost taken out of the game. Like you get here, some people you daren't even celebrate a goal anymore. Like from that side of things, it, has it made football worse? I have to be very careful how I answer this. The the the, the straight answer is um, it doesn't necessarily take the emotion away. I I have 
another not celebrated a goal less now than I have the year before. Um, but there is always that little seed of doubt in the back of your mind. Okay, what, you know, it, when you immediately see the referee doing this with his ear, you immediately think, oh, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Or, you know, we had the, the first goal against Viking took a deflection off Moses Mawa and he was onside by not much. And we had a goal scored in Trumsa away uh that was chalked off for offside that was again very very marginal um i understand the argument that uh football is a emotional game and i understand the argument that var takes away emotion i go back to another debate i talked about with um the how the norwegian uh league wants to be set up you have to either allow the emotion but accept mistakes or you have to accept that there's going to be less emotion and have a more correct game. At the moment, VAR is less correct because of the subjectivity we spoke about. But if VAR gets to a point where it's more correct, then you have to accept then that some of the emotion is going to go away. And then you just have to make your choice. I think if you'd asked people five years ago, six years ago, before VAR came in, what they wanted, I think a lot of people wanted the technology because they wanted a more fair game they wanted more things to be correct all i wanted all i wanted tom was that genuine clear and obvious decisions were overturned you know Mm. what i mean um and and and, but there seems to be because it's such a subjective sport there's times when for me it looks clear and obvious but I'm, i'm i'm sitting next to someone else who i probably quite respect their opinion and and they don't think that and that just kind of sums up sometimes where football is. But for me personally, there is, there are several occasions where stuff is clear and obvious and, and VAR does get used well. And those are the moments like, yes, that's why it's there for. But then it's these tiny, fine margin ones where it just need it, it, need, it is here to stay. It needs to be cleaned up, basically. Mm. And, and, and it may well take uh, quite a few years to get to that level. Eventually, they hopefully we'll get to there where we are in, say, cricket now, uh, where it is it more accepted. But um, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do, Tom, I think. Well, the thing is, as well, I think the, the challenge with cricket, compared to, because obviously last year I used cricket as my example of how I would do it. Like, there are the very um, few scenarios, like uh, uh, the catch that happened in the Ashes, where he catches it and then he grounds it. And it's like, well, has he grounded it or has he not grounded it? Or... There's a catch. Does it carry? Does it not carry? Is his fingers under the ball? And, you know, they're the margin ones that can go either way. Um, but he's completely right what you say, that, that there are really only four things VAR can go in for. Offside, red car offences, goals, or fouls in the lead-up to situations. But the problem is, is that of those four things, only one of them is objective. And that is... Uh, well, it's offside or not offside, basically. That's the only one that is objective. Red card is subjective. Yeah, I'm actually more inclined to go with a semi-automated offside. I'm actually worryingly more in favour of that than I ever was because it is, it's, because they claim that they could, they're going to be able to do it quicker, which I'm definitely in favour for. And I guess you're either off or you're not. You know, it is, it is kind of mm-hmm. scientific, isn't it? And... Yeah, I can probably Jakob, accept that. Jakob's tagline with that one, by the way, when we had the goal uh, ruled out in Drumsa, his his line was, you're either pregnant or you're not. There's nothing in between. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. We could, we could have this debate forever, but we'll leave it there. 
VAR, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops in Norway because there's been a lot of protests this season from it. But uh, we thank you once again, Tom, for your time on the Nordic Football Podcast and we wish you all the best for uh, for 2024 and beyond. You've just seen my cat on the screen. He's actually a very lucky omen for you. He doesn't appear very often. He has a history <laughs> of... Uh, he once attacked me um, the year that Glimt uh, won the league and we were talking about them. He has a knack of, of being a lucky omen. So, hey, top 10 next year. Sorry, top half next year. You're top in half bag. next year. Well, let's go for that. We're, we're, close. we're only we're one off top 10 now. So, Yeah. Well, thanks again, Tom, and uh, wishing you and everyone else at Hamcam all the best. Take care. Thanks, boss.